right, Luke chapter 6, questions are on the screen. Hopefully you're able to take note of those. They'll be up periodically throughout the morning, so you can uh, catch a hold of those. Um, <clears throat> when um, uh, I used to love playing sports, and maybe you did too, and some of y'all probably grew up playing, playing sports and playing organized uh, leagues uh, when, you were, when you were growing up, or hopefully maybe had the chance of doing maybe a few of those. Um, lots of fun, always in, enjoyed it. Um, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even get to join my first, thank you, didn't even get to really be a part of my first sports team, like, a, like what I would call an official sports team in the league until I was probably in like uh, fifth grade or so. Um, most of the time we played sports at our home. We had enough property where we could, we could have a, a decent little baseball field or a football field or whatever we wanted to do, we could do it. And I had enough brothers where we can come up with some sort of a team uh, between us and we would have friends come over and, and things like that. So at home, playing sandlot ball, if you remember the movie, uh, is, is how I learned how to play uh, baseball, which is my favorite sport. I, I love baseball. I love watching uh, baseball and I enjoyed playing uh, baseball. It's where I learned how to catch. It's where I learned how to throw and hit, run the bases and slide. And, and all the different rules and strategies of, of, the, of the game. So when I was in fifth grade, I wanted to try out for um, the league. And, and the age group that I was in, you can be in two groups. You can be in the majors or you can be in the minors, all right? And you can imagine both of those, right? So you had to try out, and I was old enough to be in both, so I went to try out, and, and I thought I did pretty good. And I had one of the coaches actually come up and talk to me, and he said, um, how long have you been playing? And I said, I've been playing since I could pick up a ball and throw it with my dad and my brothers. You know, so a couple years, you know, years now. And he said, well, how come I haven't seen you play? How come I haven't seen you around here on a team? And, and I said, well, this is the first year I've wanted to play on a, on a real league. And I got that look. Oh, like he's inexperienced. He doesn't know how to play. I don't want him on my team. And that's what happened. I never got picked. I didn't get picked for the major teams, right, the major league teams. But I was on the, one of the minor league teams, and I was happy because I just wanted to play ball, right? I just wanted to play ball, be on a team, you know, get a real uniform kind of thing. And, and so I show up to practice. It was close enough to my house where I, just, I rode my bike, and I show up with my, my old baseball glove, my, uh, my wood baseball bat, which apparently was not cool, right? I thought it was. You wear, using a bat like a major league baseball player used, to me, that's what you would want to use. And no. Aluminum was the thing, right? And I'm like, no, I want to use a wood bat, right? Um, I showed up with my, my holy pants, you know, my, my baseball pants that my brothers put holes in, and, and I was ready to play. And, and there I quickly learned that uh, why most of those guys were in the minor league, right? I found out that, you know, over half of them could catch. Uh, they couldn't throw. They didn't know the fundamentals. Uh, Two-thirds of them, they didn't have a shot to catch a fly ball, but that's where they would put people in the outfield, expecting no one could hit it out in the, in the outfield. And I, I just remember thinking, oh, man, like this is going to be a long year, right? This is going to be a long season. But I didn't care. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to play ball. I wanted to be in, a, in this, this real league. I wanted to learn some fundamentals from other people. But, man, we were the bad news bears. I mean, we were, we were terrible. Uh, for the first couple games. And then we started getting better and better. Um, but I, I began to quickly see, like I said in the beginning, 
why no one picked them and why no one picked me. I didn't have experience, and of course they didn't have experience, and they didn't know what they were doing and, and how to play. It, it didn't take long for, for us to figure this out. and we, we all had something in common. We all were rejected. But we had fun. We, we, still, had, we still had fun. And, and you can't blame those coaches for not picking these guys, and including myself. You can't, you can't blame them, right? There was, nothing, there was nothing really good about us at that moment. Right? We became a better team, but in that time, we weren't that great of a team. We weren't that great. We weren't all-stars. We were, like I said, we were the bad news bears. Actually, we were called the Cubs, so we were worse, right? So we were worse. Right? We had old gear. We had holes in our pants. Some people still batted with wood bats kind of stuff, right? Um, we, had, we had these big adult-sized trucker hats, right? Mustard-colored yellow with some weird insurance company on the front of it, right? That's who we were, and we didn't care. We wanted to play ball. Our passage this morning is similar to that. Similar to that idea is that, is that when we see Jesus um, picking his disciples, picking his, his apostles, that these guys were kind of like us. We were the bad news bears, and these guys were kind of the bad news bears. They were, that you wouldn't have picked them to be on your team to win. If you were going to change the world, which is what Jesus did through these men, you, you wouldn't have picked them. You would have picked someone cooler, more popular, with more money, with more education, and, and, and things like that. You wouldn't have drafted these guys onto your onto your team. No one would have picked these guys, but Jesus did. But Jesus did. And so, sandwiched in between the, the, the tension that was, that was occurring between Jesus and the, uh, and the Pharisees about, uh, you know, the Sabbath and uh, eating and drinking with the tax collectors and, and sinners and, and, and the Sabbath questions that were, were taking place, sandwiched in between that and then just below our passage is going to be Luke's account of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is this really important passage of Jesus selecting or choosing his apostles. Choosing his apostles. So let's look. Let's look together right now. Luke chapter 6. And let's read, read about who Jesus chooses to be his merry band of men to follow him. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he, pray, he was in prayer to God. He continued in prayer to God. Verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is God's not inerrant, inspired, holy word and authority to us, and may it forever be written on our hearts. So our passage this morning, as we read it the first time, or maybe you've read it a couple times, I've seen it in other places in the, in the Gospels, it may not seem as important. And it may be a passage that we just kind of, 
we're just wanting to take inventory on who's following Jesus and who's Jesus making their apostles. But I think that there's more going on here than just something we should pass through to get to the Sermon on the Mount. But we have to stop and see what Jesus is doing here. And by doing that, I want us to ask three questions this morning. Three questions we're going to answer. How did Jesus choose? What did Jesus choose these guys for? And who did Jesus choose? And who did Jesus choose? So take notice first, how did Jesus choose the twelve? How did Jesus choose the twelve? Well, the text tells us, right? Look at verse 12. At some point during, during or before or after the opposition between the Jesus and the Pharisees and the, the opposition that they were facing, Jesus went out to pray. Jesus went to a mountain. I love that. He went to a mountain to pray by himself. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus go out and pray by himself. In fact, we see Jesus in Luke chapter 4 when he's about to face temptation. He goes out into the wilderness and he prays and he fasts before facing temptation. In chapter 5, just as Jesus uh, touched the, and healed the leper, just after he healed the leper, the crowds were already beginning to the, just, just flock to him. And even after that, it says once again that more and more people continue to follow Jesus and flock to Jesus so that they can be healed and so that they can hear his teaching and hear the authority on how he, he taught. And in those moments, that's when it says there that Jesus went out and prayed. Jesus went off by himself and he, he prayed. And actually, I think John chapter 2 lets us in on why Jesus would do that. Jesus went out to, to do that and pray because he knew these crowds. He knew these people that were following him initially. Because they were just seemingly infatuated in what Jesus could do for them and by just a really good teacher. In fact, John chapter 2 it says at the end of chapter 2, it says Jesus did not trust them because he knew them. Because he knew them. And so after he healed the leper, the, the lepers, the, the, the crowd got so large, I think Jesus was just disturbed by it, knowing their hearts, and he went out and he prayed. And that's the tenor, I think, of the ministry of Christ, is that Jesus goes out and he prays when, when things are necessary when things are important, when there's a crisis, when there's an important decision that needs to be made, we always see Jesus going out and praying. And just like we see in our passage this morning where Jesus goes out and prays, we know why. He's picking his disciples. Those who we know who are going to follow him. And not just the, 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 those who will follow him, but those who would become his apostles. Luke is very specific to use this word, apostles, and none of the other Gospels use that word there officially in its very narrow sense. Uh, Mark actually says those who are sent out, so using sort of the, the, the broader sense of the word, but Jesus was choosing the twelve. And so here's Jesus praying, trusting in the Father, looking toward the Father, for wisdom and discernment on who the Father would choose to be his followers, to be his apostles. And this is what Jesus did. He went out and he prayed, and the Father showed the Son who would be the twelve. Later, three years later, in John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he, he speaks about the disciples in his prayer, and he says, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to, to the people 
whom you gave me out of your world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Prayer was everything to Jesus, and it was through prayer that Jesus lived this perfect, obedient life before his Father. And he could do nothing, humanly speaking, apart from dependent prayer on his Father. It was the foundation of the, 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 the function, of all the function of Jesus' ministry. We like to treat prayer, and prayer is not my, my topic here at all, but we like to treat prayer as the decoration of the church, don't we? Where we just talk about it, and we say it, and we'll announce prayer requests and things like that. But prayer is not the decoration to Jesus. It's the framework. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, the walls, it's the framework that's holding everything up knowing that there's nothing that can be done outside of prayer. In fact, Jesus said that you can, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not something. Nothing. Jesus prayed. So how did Jesus choose them? He prayed. Second question. What was Jesus choosing them for? What was Jesus choosing them for? Look at verse 13. It answers that question for us. We've already been saying that has chosen them to be apostles. Jesus had many followers, right? And these followers were called disciples, right? That's in its, in its broad sense of the word. Anyone who follows another one in their teaching and seeks to apply that teaching into their life is a disciple, a, a follower. And out of this large group of people that has been gathered around Jesus and hanging out with Jesus and camping out around Jesus, those disciples, Jesus was going to select 12 that would soon uh, occupy an intimate place with him. So that from this time forward, they wouldn't just be disciples, but they were chosen to be an apostle. Now, an apostle is a different role than a disciple, right? Literally, in the, in the Greek, apostle means the, the one who is sent. The one who is sent. So an apostle in the ancient world was a person who represented a king, or a, or a ruler had the authority to speak on behalf of the king. And isn't that the role that we see the apostles take in, in the founding of the church? We even see it take place in Luke chapter 9 and other places when Jesus sends out the apostles to do his work, to do the works of the kingdom, and even gives them authority over certain aspects of life. Today we would call, in a sense, apostles uh, ambassadors, People who are sent out under the authority of someone else to speak on, on their behalf. And this is crucial. This is crucial for us to understand this, this role of what an apostle is in the, the New Testament, that they are sent out under another's authority. Right? Jesus sent them out. And when he sent them out, he told them, those who do not receive you do not receive who? Do not receive me. Why? because they are under the authority of Jesus. They speak for Jesus. And in Ephesians, Paul tells us that the foundation of the church is the prophets and the apostles with Christ being their chief cornerstone. So the church established on the basis of the teaching of the apostles. These guys. These guys that Jesus is picking, choosing in this moment. Not because they are special, but it is because through the apostles, the world is going to see and hear about Christ. So not of them, right? They're the bad news bears. But it's, it's Jesus that, that, that shines through 
these guys. Sometimes you might hear people say that I believe in Jesus and I believe in what he said and I believe what he said in the Gospels. So I, I believe in the, the red letters of the Bible. That's what has authority. But, but Paul and Peter and these other guys, I, I don't believe them. They're too controversial. And there's a big problem. Of course, it's just ignorance all around. And that ignorance is who wrote the Gospels? Under what authority were the, were the Gospels written? They were under authority of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspiring men. The apostles! And through the apostles, right? Through, through the apostles, all that we know and all that we have ever read of Jesus in the Scriptures has come through the apostles. And because the New Testament has, deliver, has been delivered to us through the apostles' authority. The apostles were chosen by Jesus to do so, and they have that authority. And that has been delivered to us. So the apostles play a very crucial and unique role in the church, to which no one today or no one ever since could claim that very narrow, specific a definition as those who've been sent out under the authority of Jesus Christ with that kind of apostolic authority. So, the question, what was Jesus choosing them for? For a pretty awesome role. <laughs> right? If I could say that in my uh, Generation X lingo. Pretty fantastic role that we now have as our foundation. And who did Jesus choose, right? This is our last question. Who did Jesus choose? Jesus chose 12, right? You see that. He says chose the 12. You, didn't, you don't have to count them up. Luke already counted them for you. He chose 12, 12 men, 12 men, just like the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And that's a very significant number, a very significant number in choosing 12. And when he's choosing 12, Basically, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am building the new people of God, and I am going to take them into this new promised land, just like Moses led the 12 tribes of Israel into the promised land, so I am building a new people of God. Not only from the remnant of Israel, but also from the Gentiles. And actually, next week, we are going to see how Gentiles start to hear the message of the gospel. So that every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, men, women, boys, and girls, all of them can trust in Christ, saying, I'm leading them into the promised land. And so these guys were sent to fulfill the Great Commission. Were sent to fulfill the Great Commission and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't have a complete background on every one of these guys and what they did and where they've gone. Our, our, our best account, of course, is Acts and then we have uh, in, the, in the, uh, the epistles and the pastoral letters and things like that. We have some good evidence there. We also have some things from, the, from early church tradition, but that's really it. We don't really have very specifics on in backgrounds every single one of these guys. But what we know about these guys is that they were just ordinary guys. They were something special. Jesus was picking ordinary. Some of them were kind of colorful. Right? Some of them had some colorful backgrounds to them, and I'll explain that in just a second. Um, but Jesus chose these guys to change the world. So first there's Peter. Right? Peter always starts every single list in every one of the Gospels and the list in, in Acts. Peter. What do we know about Peter? Well, first of all, Peter's a fisherman. Right? Peter's, Peter's a fisherman. Misguided passions of Peter. 
right? He swings from one direction. First, he's cutting some guy's ear off. Next, he's denying Jesus in the same 24 hours. That's Peter. There's Andrew, another fisherman. There's James, another fisherman who would later die. What we see recorded in Acts chapter 12. There's John, fisherman, which, by the way, these two guys, they got their mom to come to Jesus and ask for a higher position in the kingdom. Right, Mom, go talk to him for us. Come on, Mom. And then there was another guy, another guy listed, uh, Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Like, so Zealot was a, was, a, was a term for this up-and-coming radical group. That they were zealot for the purity of Israel. And they, this is a group that, that hated Rome. They had this jihadist mentality against Rome. And he was a part of this group that eventually in 68 to 70 AD, when they, re, they were part of that leading group that revolted against Rome. Simon the Zealot was a radical revolutionary with terrorist tendencies. And then there was Judas. What a great merry band of folks, right? There's hope for us, right? That, that's kind of the point. There's hope for us. There's hope even for the most radical. There's hope for even the most turned away from the Lord or against the Lord. I mean, Paul. Another question that kind of came to my mind in regards to the 12 is why did Jesus choose Judas? Not, not Judas, the son of James, right? That poor fella. I, he cha- I think he changed his name, by the way. I think he's, he became Thaddeus or, you know, I think he became one of those other names or Nathaniel that rolls up in some of those other lists because nobody calls their kid Judas anymore. Not even the most secular person. No one does. So why did Jesus choose Judas? An odd person to have at the end of the list. And just just an interesting fact about Judas. Did you know he's the only non-Galilean? Judas is the only guy not from Galilee out of all, all of them. But why did Jesus choose Judas? He certainly knew that what Judas was going to do. He certainly knew that, Je- that, that he would betray Jesus in the most vile of ways. Betray him with a kiss. Why did Jesus choose him? I think he chose him for two reasons. Number one, to fill the purposes of God in salvation. And we can unpack that later. That's a deep one. He chose him and the Lord used him to fulfill his purposes of salvation, leading Jesus up to the cross, being betrayed. But the second one is this. The second one is this, is that so that we, as the church, as the people of God, we would not be caught off guard when there are deserters, betrayers, apostate, false teachers, who are either among us or trying to be among us, or that we have to remove from among us. I think that's why Jesus chose Judas, and had Judas a part of the twelve. So in in answering those three questions, I have three more things I want to show you that's going to teach us about Jesus' authority that we see him in, uh, in, in calling these guys. First, I want you to see how Jesus chooses. Second, I want to see, I want you to see that Jesus' call is effectual, and we'll talk about what that word means. And lastly, I want you to see that it is Jesus who sends. It is Jesus who sends. So first thing is Jesus chooses. Jesus chooses. Jesus has the authority to call. He has 
all authority to call. We see that in verse 13. He calls all the disciples together, and then he chooses from among them, according to the, the will of God, whom were to be his apostles. Jesus is sovereign over who he chooses. He alone has the authority. None of the twelve there sought to be a part of that group, did they? Not, not one of them tried to get their foot in the door to be one of those apostles, but rather each and every single one of them were divinely, sovereignly appointed by Jesus. And this truth is a truth that the apostles carried with them as they continued to follow Jesus. That when they suffered, when they faced trials of unknown, not certainty of the, of the future, what set them in place was the fact that it was Jesus that chose them for this work. That it was Jesus that chose them. So they weren't responsible for it, but Jesus was responsible for it. In, in Mark, um, this choosing, he, he describes it as, he called him whom he would. He called in him whom he would. Right? In him, in, in him whom uh, he would. I like what, um, I took notes here on what Calvin said in response to this passage there and, and how Luke conveyed it. He says, by this expression... I have no doubt Mark conveys to us instruction that it was to the unmixed grace of Christ and not to any excellence of their own that they were indebted for receiving so honorable an office. For if you understand him who say that those were chosen who were more excellent than others, this would not apply to Judas. Thus, the meaning, therefore, is the apostleship was not bestowed on account of any human merits, but by the free mercy of God. Persons who were altogether unworthy of it were raised in that high rank and thus were fulfilled what Christ says on another occasion. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And he's quoting there from John 15, 16. You did not choose me, he's talking to his disciples, but I have chosen you, that you may bear fruit, and that your fruit shall abide. This, this choosing, this sovereign authority that Jesus has to, to call his disciples is so reminiscent of his divine authority to choose in choosing the elect before the pre before the foundation of the world. And he does so according to his purposes. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. He chooses according to the purposes of his will. According to the purpose of his will. Not the, not the will of the apostles, not the will that, that they want, but for the foundation where he chooses according to the purpose of his will, that we would be holy and blameless. And in love, he predestines us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of his will. And he also does so according to the riches of his grace. Sola gratia. According to the riches of his grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 6 in Ephesians 1. 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And I love what verse 8 says, and I don't have it, in which he lavished upon us, that he poured out on us, that he lavished on it, the riches of his grace unconditional election of God is the lavishness of his grace poured out on his people and in love doing so and he does so according to his purpose look at verse uh, he, maybe they'll put it up here verse, verse 11 Ephesians 1 11. in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things out according to the counsel of his will so, so not just the sovereign purposes of God in election and our salvation is being fulfilled by God, but all things. All things are being worked out according to the counsel of His will. God's decree before the foundation of the world and that He is working all things out according to the counsel of His, of his will. God has not only planned the end, but God has sovereignly ordained according to the counsel of His will all things for His glory and for our joy. He has not just planned the end, but He has planned every single means to get there. And He has orchestrated all these things out. So why did Jesus choose this merry band? Why did He choose fishermen? Why did He choose potential terrorists? Why did he choose these guys who were blue-collar country guys, uneducated? Why did he choose them? Jesus chose these guys who were weak, who were immature, who were insignificant, uneducated, ordinary, weak in faith, without understanding in so many ways, he chose them just as he has chosen us so that he would demonstrate to us and to the world that this is my church and that my church is going to be made up of weak, struggling, uneducated, weak in faith sinners so that they will see that the church is not based upon the, st- the foundation of a man. It will be not based upon the foundation of a pope but it is based upon the stability of Christ and Christ alone. Praise God, brothers and sisters, that it does not depend upon me. The stability of the church is not dependent upon me, but Christ alone. It does not depend upon you, but Christ alone. And so in that freedom, we live obediently and fruitfully, and encouraging, encouraged that it is Christ as our refuge, and our strength, and our help, and our foundation. And so we depend on Him, and we trust in Him, and we pray to Him. Because He alone has that authority. And yet, despite of who they were, And yet, even despite their future failures of this group of men, 
we know by the power of the Holy Spirit, these guys conquered the ancient world with grace. And this is my second point. Jesus' call is effectual. Hear this, brothers and sisters. When God calls ordinary men and women who are weak and unable and insignificant to himself, his call is always effectual. The apostles are such great examples. I mean, there was no way they would turn out the way they did outside of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible is just full of these guys to us, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's just full of guys, men and women. Moses, yeah, Moses was, grew up in Egypt and was wealthy, but he was rejected. He ran from Egypt. He was a murderer. He couldn't speak. He couldn't talk. And yet God used Moses. There's Gideon, ordinary. He even says it, God, who am I? I'm just ordinary. I'm not even a warrior. You want to use me? There's Jeremiah, another, another prophet who could not speak. There's David, insignificant little 13-year-old David in the, in, the, in the field tending the flock. And yet it is David who God anoints, not his bigger and stronger brothers. God's call is effectual. God's call is effectual. Because here it is. Essentially what this means is that God's elect will be saved. God's elect will be saved. We will be regenerated and we will be given the grace to believe and the faith to believe and as necessary. God will accomplish his work. And he has decreed this before the foundation of the world. But there's more to this effectual call. Let me, let me read from chapter 3 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. You don't need to know that, but they'll put it up for you. You can read this with me. It says this. He says, Not only has God appointed the elect to glory in accordance with His eternal and free purpose of His will, but He has also foreordained the means by which His purpose will be effected. Since His elect are children of Adam... That's us, meaning we are sinners, and therefore among those who are ruined by Adam's fall into sin, he willed, he willed, it's been done, he willed that they should be redeemed by Christ and effectually called to faith in Christ. Furthermore, by the working of his Holy Spirit in due season, they are justified they are adopted, they are sanctified, and they are kept by His power through faith unto salvation. None but the elect partake of any of these great benefits. Amen. The call, the effectual call of Christ will sustain us, it will sanctify us, it will keep us. It is what takes what is ordinary and makes extraordinary. It's not only what saves us, but it sustains us and sanctifies us. Our faith, our obedience, 
and all the ebbs and joys of sin and pleasure in our life that flows daily, that, that ebbs and flows daily, goes ups and downs, all of our emotions that are swayed by this, by this world with temptation and sin and pleasures, the effectual, uh, the effectual call of God gives us a solid assurance that it is upon Christ that we stand, that we are chosen, that we are called, that we are regenerated, and that we are deeply loved. That we are deeply loved, not based upon any of our merit, not based upon your merit, but based upon the merit of Jesus Christ. So one of the, this is one of the greatest glories of God's call for us to understand that it is in our weaknesses and in our failures and in our struggles and and issues that we may have and in our, our sin that in every single one of those are opportunities for the power of God to take our ordinary weaknesses and our failures and just completely make room, wipe those away for his extraordinariness. God has chosen nobodies. God has chosen nobodies to do his greatest works. And sometimes he does use somebodies, doesn't he? I mean, I think Paul was a somebody that he, that he chose. But it's only in that moment when the nobodies and the somebodies kind of come together in their understanding that they renounce all of their dependence upon their abilities and their own resources and trust in Christ. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 7. Or, yeah, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. But we know what the treasure is. The treasure is the gospel. Well, in ancient times, people used to hide their treasures in these pots. That was their safes. And they would go and bury those things where they where they wanted to, where no one else would know, and that's where their treasure would be. And what he's saying here is God has taken the gospel, his treasure, and he has put it into jars of clay, weak vessels, frail and weak, and he has put into us the greatest treasure, the gospel. Some would say, and some of us may be thinking this morning, how, I mean, I'm not more want to disagree with God, but how foolish was it really to trust me to put that in such a weak, frail vessel? That given the chance would fall over in a heartbeat and smash to a million pieces. But this is what God does. This is what God does to show that he is great. To show that he is sovereign, that he is gracious, and that he is powerful. That despite us, he uses us so that the gospel gospel in the church would go forth. And the promise to us that, that it will not fail. That despite us, it will not fail. That despite the apostles, it it will not fail because Christ is our captain. The glorious gospel has been committed to us, common, frail, weak as we are, so that the immense power of God will be seen 
and not our own. He will sustain us. He will carry us. He will sanctify us. And his call is effectual. So there is grace and there is mercy for ordinary weak like me, like you. And our dependence is upon the Lord. And that brings us right back to the beginning of prayer, doesn't it? Because prayer is dependence. Prayer is an absolute dependence. I'm trusting in the Lord. This, this roof is going to cave down on me if, if the walls are not holding it up. I'm dependent upon the Lord. So we rely on Him and His Holy Spirit for strength, as the apostles did. So first, Jesus chooses. Second, Jesus' call or choice is effectual in our lives. And thirdly, Jesus sends. And just as we see how Jesus sent the apostles, he sent the apostles out, that they weren't the first apostles. The first apostle in the New Testament is not Peter, it's not Paul, it's not James, it's not John. It's actually Jesus. Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent out by God. Was sent out by the Father. At, at one point when Jesus is speaking in this way, the Pharisees respond to him saying, we believe in God, we believe in the Father, it is you we repudiate. It's you we disagree with. And Jesus responded back to them, was very simple. He says, if you repudiate me, by implication, you must be repudiating the one who sent me. God the Father. The Father sent the Son. And as the Father sent the Son, the Son sends out His apostles. He sent out His apostles and He gave the authority to, to His apostles to, to breathe the foundation that, that, that plants the church and gets the church going throughout the world. And they have been given authority. And through the apostles now, we as the church have been given authority. In fact, Jesus says that authority in Matthew 18 and 16, that it's the authority of the keys of the kingdom. So although not in its strictest and most narrowest understanding of the word apostle, I would not claim that word or that title apostle, broadly speaking, we are sent out as the apostles. That we have been sent out. We have not been sent in. We have been sent out. Sent out to do what? To be ambassadors. To speak for our king. To be representatives of the kingdom of God. Not our own little kingdoms. Not of our own desires and wants. But the kingdom of Christ. That Christ would receive all of the glory. And we have been given the Holy Spirit as the apostles have been given the Holy Spirit. To have power. To have power to speak and to proclaim the gospel in the places that God has sovereignly decreed each and every one of us to exist in and to live in and to work in and to go and to be a part of. God has sovereignly decreed every one of those things. He has sent us out. We are not chosen and called with effectual grace from just sin alone. But we have been called to something. We have been called to something, and that is, and that is to be a part of the great mission of God. To take the gospel 
to the nations, to preach Christ and Him crucified to the nations. And here's my, here's my, 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 my encouragement in this. I kind of mentioned in the beginning that we don't really know the background of, of all of these guys. You know, a couple of them, we, we do know what happens. I mean, we know what, we, we know what happens to uh, the Peter. Peter, uh, uh, Peter gets, gets crucified, and it, you know, tradition says he was crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Um, um, let's see, Thomas was, uh, like I said, tradition, was impaled by a spear. James was beheaded by King Herod, Acts chapter 12. Uh, tradition also says that Simon the Zealot um, was crucified in 74 A.D. in Britain. And, but the rest of the guys, we do know that they, they, they experienced similar fates, but we don't know. We don't, we don't have these New Testament accounts of every single one of, these, one of these guys. John was exiled to do hard labor. And the reality is, is that most of us will be just like those guys. We, we will come, we will go, and we'll never be heard of again. I mean, no, just a little reality check. In two generations, your grandchildren, most of your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren will never even know your name. They won't even know where you're buried, maybe. And we have a call that is greater than making our own selves worthy. We have a call that has been placed upon us to be sent out to be like these guys and to be unknown, but to be faithful. But to be faithful. To be faithful to the gospel. And we, we may not be like Peter, where everybody's going to read about us and everybody's going to know and they're going to make jokes about St. Peter's at the gate and all that stuff. And we may not be that person. But are we willing to be like Philip and Thaddeus and Andrew and Simon? Simon, who went all the way to Britain to preach the gospel to flat-out pagans, and he was killed for it. Will we be faithful to the Lord? Will we be those, those, those weak vessels to hold them out so that the Lord will, will use us, be obedient to share in the gospel? We're not just supposed to sit here and revel in our uh, election. That is good, and it's encouraging, but our election is what propels us forward as it was for the Reformers. It's the catalyst that sends us forward that we trust in the sovereignty of God and that He has ordained all things and that He could use us as weak vessels and that where I am weak, He is strong. He is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. He chooses according to the, His will and the poor purpose of His glory. He chooses and His call is effectual and His purposes will be accomplished and He will gloriously provide in every one of those means and lastly, that effectual call is what sends us out as representatives and ambassadors of Jesus to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in every place that the Lord would have us. And let me read just this last verse and then I'm going to pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then he is strong. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would let your word sink in our hearts this morning. Let our encouragement be from the deep truths that we have spoken of this morning. Help us to boast only in Christ and his strengths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.